It's presidential primary day in Michigan. Meanwhile, the latest Gallup poll shows immigration is at the top of Americans' list of most urgent problems facing the country. Economic concerns have cooled. Today is Tuesday, February 27th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the state of Florida is reckoning with a measles outbreak in an elementary school. Even though the virus is dangerous and contagious, the state's top health official is contradicting established guidance and not encouraging people to get vaccinated. And the Underground Railroad is a powerful symbol of America's resistance to slavery and a symbol of courage. This was a small number of activists taking grave risks to help people to freedom. Coming up, the forgotten hero of the Underground Railroad. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Congress is again confronting the threat of a partial government shutdown as it approaches a pair of funding deadlines this Friday and March 8th. NPR's Tamara Keith reports President Biden sat down today with Congress's four senior Democratic and Republican lawmakers, all of whom emerged from today's meeting expressing optimism. After their meeting in the Oval Office, both House Speaker Mike Johnson and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries hit a similar note about keeping the government funded. We're very optimistic. I, I hope that the other leaders came out here and told you the same. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown. I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, that we can do what is necessary within the next day or so to close down these bills and avoid a government shutdown. The main area of disagreement is a separate funding measure to provide weapons to Ukraine. Speaker Johnson says the U.S. border must be the top priority, while Biden and the other leaders say Ukraine can't wait. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Just a few hours left to vote in Michigan's presidential primaries. NPR's Elena Moore says President Biden and former President Donald Trump are expected to win their respective parties' contests. Despite being a crucial battleground state, there's little candidate buzz in Michigan today. On the Democratic side, Biden faces deep division among some of his base that supported him in 2020, notably Arab and Muslim Americans in the state. A campaign called Listen to Michigan is urging Democrats to vote uncommitted as a statement against Biden's handling of Israel. Israel's war in Gaza. They want him to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire and stop sending additional aid to Israel. On the Republican side, former South Carolina governor and long-shot presidential contender Nikki Haley was the only candidate to make in-person stops in the state this week, but she faces a steep challenge against Trump. Elena Moore, NPR News, Detroit. Only some of the state's Republican delegates are up for grabs tonight, though. A majority of them will be allocated at the GOP's caucus-style convention March 2nd. President Biden says he hopes to see a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war next Monday. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the administration envisions an extended pause. That would allow for several weeks, hopefully up to six, where there would be no fighting so that we can get all the hostages out, increase the flow of humanitarian assistance, but just as critically, get the fighting stopped. So far, the Israeli government appears to be moving forward with its operational plans in Rafah, at the southern tip of the Gaza Strip, where more than a million displaced Palestinians are taking refuge. Privately owned Odysseus spacecraft has only hours left to live. It's running out of battery life now that the sunlight's no longer hitting the probe's solar panels. Last week, it tipped over as it touched down on the moon. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report is breaking down the way systemic racism and slavery have affected black Bostonians today. The report is from the nonprofit Embrace Boston. That's the group behind the Martin Luther King Jr. statue on Boston Common. It says systemic racism shows itself in inequities in housing, transportation, wealth, and health. Embrace Boston's Elizabeth DeBlanc says she hopes the city's reparations task force uses the findings to come up with recommendations. What we encourage the city to do is to use this as a guide, as an articulation tool to see what the growth has been. How far have we come with this racial equity work? And also currently, what are still areas within each harm area that haven't been addressed? The report's recommendations on reparations include cash payments, more investment in low-income schools, and police reforms. The town administrator in Milton says he's looking forward to defending the town against a lawsuit from the state attorney general. A.G. Andrea Campbell filed a lawsuit against Milton today for failing to comply with the MBTA communities law. That law requires cities and towns with MBTA stops to zone part of their communities for additional multifamily housing. The town approved such a plan in December, but then voters overturned the measure earlier this month. Governor Moore Healy wants to keep the state's life sciences initiative going for another decade. She told business leaders at the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce this morning she will recommend it as part of an economic development bill she plans to file this week. Chamber President and CEO Jim Rooney says the governor appears to be listening to the business community. But the R&D is going on in Boston and Cambridge and the manufacturing going on in Greater Worcester or Greater Springfield. You know, there's no plane trips involved in visiting the factory site and the synergies to having them close that create cost advantages. Healy did not mention a possible cost. When the Life Sciences Initiative began in 2008, it included a $1 billion investment over 10 years. A new study finds that the state minimum wage is not keeping up with the cost of living in Massachusetts. The MIT research shows that an individual in the Bay State would have to earn almost $28 an hour to meet basic needs. The minimum wage here is $15 an hour. In the forecast, hope you enjoy today because we've got rain moving in for about the next 24 hours. Showers should start around 9 or 10 tonight. Peel off the blanket could be about 49 degrees for the lowest overnight. Then tomorrow, showers, some wild winds should be warmer, up around 60 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A couple years ago, dozens of British companies switched to a four-day work week with no reduction in pay. Sounds pretty nice. What started out as a pilot program has turned into an overwhelming success. We'll have more on that in a few moments. But first, the 2024 presidential primary season continues, and Michigan appears poised to follow the script of states that have already voted. That means lopsided victories for both President Biden and former President Trump. Even so, there are still interesting storylines to watch. And to talk about those storylines, NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne, who is based in Michigan, joins us now. Hey, Don. 
Hey, good to be here. Good to have you. Sounds like we have a bit of a delay. So, I mean, it goes without saying Michigan is important. Trump won the state in 2016, Biden in 2020. What has the campaign been like there this week with the vote coming just, what, three days after South Carolina's primaries? Yeah, it's not exactly been rush hour for the leading candidates. (laughs) Trump was last year more than a week ago for a rally. Nikki Haley has been in suburban Detroit and Grand Rapids the past two days. She's attracted small but loyal crowds. Uh, Biden was here earlier this month for a visit to a UAW phone bank operation. The UAW, United Auto Workers, have, of course, endorsed him. Vice President Harris was here talking reproductive rights, but it hasn't been as busy as other primary seasons, but there is something interesting going on. Uh-huh. The primary has also been a chance for protests against Biden policy. Specifically, Arab American and Muslim voters are angry that the U.S. continues to support Israel and that Biden hasn't called for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Right. And how exactly are those voters protesting this election? So the, the the protest is asking voters to choose uncommitted on their ballot. That's literally a box they can check on their ballot to withhold their support for Biden, to send him a message that his policies need to change drastically. Arab American and Muslim voters are a small but important voting block here. So the goal of the campaign is to get 10,000 votes for uncommitted to act as a warning that if these voters stay home or go third third party come November, then Biden could lose the state. Uh, The Biden team, meanwhile, says it's committed to earning every vote here, uh, but these protesters say he's not earned their vote and that there needs to be a permanent ceasefire now. Okay. Well, despite those protests, the results of this primary is pretty much, well, it's widely expected that both Biden and Trump will come through to win the state. But even if primaries, you know, in a year like this one where there really doesn't seem to be much of a contest, what can they show us? You know, it tells us who turns out and who the diehard voters are. It shows us what's important to them. Biden has to hang on to his core voters, and we'll get a sense of that today. Uh, Black voters, union members, young voters, suburban voters, especially suburban women, all those are voting groups. You're going to see Trump trying to peel some votes off for himself. He had some success at that when he won in 2016, uh, but 2020, Biden held that coalition together and carried Michigan and the election. So Biden's got to hang on to those voters. Trump is going to be looking for ways to try to uh, woo some of them. That is NPR's Don Gagne. Thank you, Don. It's my pleasure. Let's turn now from Michigan to Florida, where an outbreak of measles raises concerns for public health. Ten cases have been reported in South and Central Florida, and experts say the state's response rejects science-based practices and puts children in danger of a deadly disease. NPR's Ping Huang is here in the studio with the latest. Hey, Ping. Hey, Ari. Bring us up to speed here. How is the outbreak developing? Yeah, so the measles outbreak that we're talking about today, it started in mid-February at an elementary school in South Florida. As you said, there's now 10 cases total. There's nine in Broward County where the school is and one case in Central Florida in Polk County. And you might say, okay, 10 cases doesn't sound like a whole lot. But the thing with measles is that it's really, really contagious. So if someone with measles walks through a hallway, sneezes, that measles virus can stay in the air and infect someone who walks through the space two hours 
years later. And if someone's not vaccinated, has no immunity to it, nine times out of 10, if they get exposed, they're going to get measles. So a single case is cause for concern. 10 cases is pretty bad news, especially because the response so far, it goes against standard public health advice. That figure, nine out of 10 unvaccinated people in that situation would get measles, is really striking. Tell us what you mean by the state's response goes against standard public health advice. What is that advice? Yeah, so, so measles has been studied for over a century, and there are clear steps to contain an outbreak. Here's Dr. Scott Ribkeys. He's a public health professor at Brown University. If you have an outbreak, you have early vaccination, try to get people vaccinated with three days of exposure. And for those individuals who are not, those individuals have to quarantine for 21 days. And that's because people can spread the virus even if they don't have symptoms. Now, Rivkeys, who you just heard, he's the former Surgeon General in Florida. That's the advice Florida would be getting if he was still in the role. But he left in 2021, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis put a doctor named Joseph Latipo in that role next. Latipo was part of a group that pushed unproven COVID vaccines and, sorry, unproven COVID treatments even before he took on the role. And as Surgeon General, he refused to wear masks and he discouraged people from getting COVID vaccines. And science has told us both of those measures are proven to help prevent COVID infections. Mm -hmm. So what is Florida's current Surgeon General now saying about measles? Well, last week, in a letter to parents, Latipo didn't recommend that kids get vaccinated and he left it to parents to decide whether to send their kids to school. Dr. Ali Khan, he's the public health dean at the University of Nebraska, and he says that's irresponsible. This is dangerous behavior for public health. It's very dangerous. Because if you're undermining confidence in public health, including vaccination and public health measures, you are putting an increasing number of people at risk of these diseases that we no longer see anymore. I mean, no longer see anymore. It was considered eradicated for a long time, Eliminated, right? Eliminated, yeah. Eliminated. Mm-hmm. Eliminated. Because it is so rare, many people have not seen or experienced measles. What are the actual risks? What are the stakes here? Yeah, so so a mild case of measles can involve getting a rash, diarrhea, dehydration. That's already pretty bad. But it can get more serious than that. It can turn into pneumonia. In rare cases, it can even lead to brain swelling, which can cause children to lose their sight or their hearing. And it can also be deadly. So in the U.S., before there was a vaccine, the U.S. was seeing 500 deaths from measles each year. Mm. Now, as you mentioned, Ari, for the last 23 years, measles has been considered eliminated from the U.S. And obviously, we still do see cases of it, but those are usually related to foreign travel. We can continue to keep that elimination status so long as each measles outbreak that we have gets contained within a year. Just briefly, is this going to get worse before it gets better? We'll have to wait and see. I mean, in Florida... um, Um, You know, we're going to watch and see if there are more measles cases and overall in the U.S. as well. So far, there have been 35 cases in 15 states this year, and there probably will be more, especially in pockets where there are lower vaccination rates. And Pierre's Ping Huang, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Well, the four-day work week is proving to be the gift that keeps on giving. Companies are who are trying it report happier workers, lower turnover, and greater efficiency. NPR's Andrea Xu reports on the latest research coming out of those trials. Around this time last year, early results from a large trial in the UK caused a hullabaloo. Of 61 companies that had moved to a four-day work week with no reduction in pay, 92% said they would continue with it. 
Now another whole year has passed, and all but a few have either made it permanent or extended their trials. Boston College sociologist Juliet Shore is part of the research team. People are feeling really on top of their work with this new model. She says the gains are not a novelty effect, and they're not limited to the UK. Survey data from elsewhere, including here in the U.S., show lasting improvements in things like physical and mental health and work-life balance. The results are really stable. A couple of the U.K. employers talked about their experiences in a webinar hosted by the researchers. Nikki Russell, who leads a water conservation nonprofit in London, says she realized early on... You know, if we close on a Friday, nobody dies. We aren't doctors. We're not running a chip shop. Still, they were busy. So to make it work, they now keep all their meetings to half an hour. They block off focus time in their calendars. They're more mindful about email. So I only do my emails now at certain times of the day. I'm not sort of drawn into them all day, every day. All 10 people at the company loved the changes. Most of them said they wouldn't consider a five-day-a-week job again without a significant raise. It's brilliant for retention, which is super important in a teeny organization like ours. Now, one thing the researchers have learned is that there's no one-size-fits-all. Giving everyone Fridays off wouldn't have worked for the housing cooperative in South Wales, where Ruth Llewellyn works. They have 240 employees working in roles from customer service to home repairs and maintenance. We still operate a Monday to Friday service because for us, the thought of dropping a repair service for our tenants one day a week meant that we wouldn't be providing the same service. So employees work a variety of schedules. Some have a set day off and for others it changes. We've also got people that do two half days, people that do five days, shorter hours, which allows them to do things like drop the children at school and pick them up. Llewellyn says there are fewer sick day callouts and employee performance has been consistent. Still, they want to collect more data, so they extended their pilot for another year. We're really hopeful at that point that we can make it permanent. Now, the researchers did talk about one of the very few companies where the experiment failed. A small consultancy struggled with managing client and stakeholder expectations. Although employees were happier, management had a change of heart. The researchers suggest that better planning and more flexibility might have changed that outcome. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Missouri has one of the strictest abortion bans in the country with no exception for rape or incest. Abortion rights advocates want to give residents a chance to vote on legalizing abortion rights this year. That story and much more coming up on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres, on stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
It was a mixed show on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped a quarter of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq ended on the upside. The S&P gained nearly two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq pulled in almost four-tenths of a percent. Stock in Burlington-based Minerva Neurosciences dropped 59 percent in trading today. That's after the company said that federal regulators declined to approve its new treatment for schizophrenia. The FDA said it did not find the drug was effective and that not enough people were included in the studies on the drug's safety. Minerva says it will try to meet with the FDA and address those problems. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Register for summer camp and more at newartcenter.org. This afternoon, the Red Sox and St. Louis Cardinals ended in a 3-3 tie down in spring training. Rain moves in overnight tonight. Should have temperatures tonight just about 49 degrees for a low. Then tomorrow, more rain, pretty windy and warm, pushing 60 degrees. 57 degrees now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority and his government all resigned yesterday. Now, the Palestinian Authority does not govern in Gaza. It administers part of the occupied West Bank. And its top official is President Mahmoud Abbas, who did not resign. But the U.S. and other Arab countries have been pushing the Palestinian Authority to reform itself, hoping that it could help govern Gaza after the war ends. NPR's Fatma Tanis is covering this from Tel Aviv. Hi there. Hi, Ari. Why this upheaval in the government of the Palestinian Authority now, and who might take the place of those who've resigned? So I should say that nothing has really changed immediately. Uh, President Mahmoud Abbas has accepted the announcement, but the prime minister and government are still in place in a caretaker role until a successor is announced, and we don't know when that would be. Uh, What Abbas is trying to do here is respond to international pressure for the Palestinian Authority to reform. It's known as dysfunctional and corrupt. You know, Arab countries have actually made this a condition for financial support. Meanwhile, the U.S. wants the PA to play a viable part in a post-war plan. So they need a government that can operate in both the West Bank and Gaza, you know, be a stabilizing factor after the war, oversee things like humanitarian aid flow, uh, and the massive effort to rebuild Gaza. Now, analysts say this is all at a surface level at this point. Any new government would need to have political buy-in from all Palestinian factions, which would include Hamas, and would be made up of technocrats who aren't politically affiliated but can run civil administration. The way you're describing it sounds like a pipe dream. Could it actually work? Well, there are two main hurdles, among others. Uh, This is an effort that would require a lot of internal orchestration and leadership, and many don't think that President Abbas, who is almost 90 years old, is up for it. I spoke with uh, Khaled El-Gindi, who is the director of Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli issues at the Middle East Institute. Here's how he put it. He's not known for bold maneuvers, for strategic thinking. He is very much about maintaining his grip on power. He's hugely unpopular. So there's potential. I'm just not sure that it can happen on the watch of Mahmoud Abbas. 
The other issue is Israel's current right-wing government, who don't want to see any national Palestinian entity that's governing both Gaza and the West Bank. Israel wants a local group in Gaza taking care of stuff like schools and roads while it maintains security and military control. But that is also something that Palestinians in Gaza would be against, and experts say that could even lead to an insurgency in the enclave. Yeah, we're talking about who would govern Palestinians. What do most Palestinians think about all this? Well, there's long been a sense of disillusionment among Palestinians. Uh, today, Samir Taha in Ramallah told NPR that he was not surprised by the news. Here's what he said. He says any new government is meaningless as long as we are not in control of our own fate and the U.S., EU and Israel get to decide what happens. We also spoke to Suhair Khalid, who would really like to see a Palestinian government that oversees Gaza and the West Bank. Here she is. She emphasized that she wants to see real unity that would help create a Palestinian state in the future and move away from the fractured politics of today. Uh, others have said that they wanted to see Palestinian leadership that works for the people and not for their own advantages. Uh, of course, Ari, we should mention that there have been no elections held in the Palestinian territories since 2006. That's NPR's Fahmatanis in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you. On Thursday, President Biden travels to Texas to visit the U.S. border with Mexico. Now, former President Trump will be at the border, too, but hundreds of miles away. Texas Democrats hope Biden's visit means a turning point for their party's border message, which has become one of the most pressing political fights across the country. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. During a festive Democratic rally at an early voting site in Laredo, Texas, couple Francisco Enriquez and Lupita Garcia recalled a very unique wedding ceremony. Enriquez, a U.S. citizen, and Garcia, a Mexican resident, say in their native Spanish that they married on a nearby international crossing bridge more than five years ago. He says they lived apart for five years until Garcia recently gained legal U.S. residency. This, Enrique says, as he saw migrants cross illegally all the time. Enrique says he supports a lot of Democratic policies and he won't vote for former President Trump. He likes his local Democrats, but he's not as excited about their leaders. He wishes they would do more on the border. A few blocks away, Texas Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar says he happens to agree. Why are we ceding the border security debate to Republicans? We did that for years. That's Cuellar at his Laredo office. He says the high-profile transfer of migrants by plane and bus from Texas to other states and cities changed everything. I don't think a lot of the other people saw it, too. They started seeing it in Chicago, D.C., and New York, and other places. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's real. It has always been real for Cuellar. He served 10 terms despite challenges from Republicans, in part because he says he leaned into the border fight. I think it's important for Democrats to push back on the narrative. Hey, border security, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. They need to step into it. I stepped into it, and it works. When Cuellar says it works, he points to one of the latest examples, Democrat Tom Suozzi, who ran in a special election for a New York congressional seat. He noted Suozzi leaned into the border debate and won. Cuellar says the playbook for Democrats' border success also needs to include better top-down messaging in the party. 
Other border Democrats, like Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, bristle at the confusing border czar role given to Vice President Kamala Harris three years ago. I don't understand that. I still don't understand that. We never saw her here. We never talked about it. She never met with us, never talked to me. For years, Gonzalez, a four-term member who represents the Texas Valley in the state's southeast corner, made it his mission to convince Biden to visit. I think it's important for him to visit the border and visit a region where he's well-loved and, and he has a lot of support. And if you drive down the expressway, you see all kinds of massive infrastructure that's developing right now that all came from funding under his programs. That's Gonzalez just before he cast his early vote at City Hall in West Laco, Texas, and just before he got his wish. This week, Biden finally announced his first visit as president to Gonzalez's district. and marks Biden's second stop to the Texas-Mexico border since he was elected, following the first in January 2023 to El Paso. And I think it's important for him to come out here and not only here, but across the country and take credits for some of the great things that they've accomplished. House Democrats hope they can make progress here by backing Michelle Vallejo in her bid to unseat GOP Congresswoman Monica de la Cruz in a Texas border district. It's an uphill battle, but during a recent visit to a McAllen coffee shop, Vallejo says it doesn't have to be that way if Democrats engage in the border fight. For us, it's important that we have a functioning border and we need to eliminate all of the chaos because this is our home. Democrats may face a firewall of Republican districts, low voter turnout, and complaints of GOP gerrymandering in Texas. But they hope their party's border shift could fuel a national blue tide come November. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, along the Texas border. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Join us at City Space Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscar Awards, for a conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Schulman about his book chronicling the last century of scandals, drama, and secrets from Hollywood's biggest night. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, wet weather moves in tonight sometime after 9 o'clock. Strong winds, temperatures about 49 at the lowest. Tomorrow, rainy, windy, and pretty warm, pushing 60 degrees. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner Theatre in Brookline, presenting new and classic films since 1933, with two new state-of-the-art theaters opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org. And Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. It's primary election day in the battleground state of Michigan. On the Democratic side, President Biden is expected to gain the support of most Democrats. But young voters in Michigan turned out more than anywhere else during the midterms. That's when Democrats flipped a seat in Congress and took full control of state government. 
But this time around, Jovan Martin, a student at Wayne State University in Detroit, is skeptical. I understand a lot of hardcore liberals that will listen to this and be like, at the end of the day, you have to pick, you have to pick, you have to pick. You know what I mean? You need to pick Biden. And I do understand that. But also at the same time, it's the idea of feeling like you're not listened to, feeling like we're in, we're not actually in a democracy. And it's something that's driven by power and wealth. President Biden has also faced blowback from a group of Arab Americans in Michigan who are angry over the situation in Gaza and U.S. support for Israel. The FBI, NSA, and other international partners are warning that Russian hackers are targeting vulnerable routers used to connect to the cloud. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. Hackers around the world are forced to regularly adapt and improve their tactics to evade detection and get around digital defenses. Russian hackers working for the government are particularly adept at finding new ways to break into their victims' networks. According to a new cybersecurity advisory, the same Russian hacking group behind the 2020 SolarWinds breach is now going after routers used to connect to the cloud, or edge routers. Law enforcement partners recently took action to disrupt Russia's use of these compromised routers. However, many are still vulnerable and do not automatically install security updates. According to the advisory, Russian hackers have specifically targeted individuals using the vulnerable routers in Ukraine. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is hoping a nonprofit health care system can take over the hospitals now run by Stewart Healthcare. The for-profit company has warned its financial troubles jeopardize operations at its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Governor Maura Healey says she wants Stewart to end its operations altogether in the state and transfer oversight of its facilities. Stewart has not publicly responded to that. Today, Trahan told WBR's Radio Boston she's introduced a bipartisan measure on Capitol Hill that would provide federal funding and a safety net for community hospitals. We need to recognize that as we fund these hospital systems, that we have to make sure that they're stable, that they can offer the services that communities, um, and often these are underserved communities, that they need. Trahan has three steward-run hospitals in her district. A group of Boston city leaders are hoping to make their Dominican Independence Day breakfast into an annual event that rivals St. Patrick's Day political breakfast. Three city councilors hosted the first event today, and WBR Solon Kelleher was there. At a Dorchester Union Hall, fried eggs and espresso-sized cups of Cafe Santo Domingo were on the menu for the city's newest political breakfast. Councillor Julia Mejia had the idea for the event after three Dominican Americans were elected to Boston City Council for the first time. I came here when I was five years old and I didn't know how to speak a lick of English. And today to be here and to see this room full of Dominicans and Americans under one roof really says to me that Everything that I went through to get here was worth it. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says she expects the breakfast to continue, minus the bad jokes at the St. Paddy's Day roast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The night watchman who let thieves into the Gardner Museum in Boston more than three decades ago has died. An attorney for Richard Rick Abbott tells the Boston Globe that Abbott died Friday in Vermont after a long illness. In 1990, he was 23 years old when he was a guard, a night watchman in the museum, and he let in two thieves who claimed to be police officers. They eventually stole a half billion dollars worth of art in a case that is yet to be solved. Abbott always maintained that he played no role in the theft. The Garden Museum said in a statement it's sorry to hear of its passing but had no further comment. This is WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include Music Worcester presenting Orchestre Metropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Tickets at musicworcester.org. And Habib and Associates Architects serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. Got some strong winds moving in tonight, some rain as well. Temperatures 49 at the lowest. Tomorrow, more rain, really windy and pretty warm, pushing 60 degrees. Thursday, the rain ends early. Then we should have mainly sunny skies, windy and colder than it has been. Temperatures Thursday may peak at 35 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Underground Railroad, the secret network that helped enslaved people escape from southern slave states to free states in the north, is most closely associated with Harriet Tubman. Tubman escaped slavery in Maryland, but returned again and again, risking her own freedom to help free others, including members of her own family. But for every story like Harriet Tubman's, there are countless others that we don't know, including how the Underground Railroad got its name. Journalist Scott Shane found the answer to that question when he was researching the life of Thomas Smallwood, a little-known activist who played a key role in abolition. Shane's book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland, details Smallwood's life, writings for an abolitionist newspaper in Albany, and his efforts with the Underground Railroad. Thomas Smallwood is an amazing guy uh, who very few people know about. He was born into slavery in 1801, just outside D.C. He purchased his freedom by the age of 30. He became a shoemaker in southeast Washington. And basically, he began with the help of uh, a white sidekick named Charles Torrey to organize escapes from slavery. And they decided they would not uh, try in, in ones and twos and threes, but they would try to help people escape by the wagon load. So they would load 10, 15, 20 people into a wagon and drive them north or send them north. I'm curious, in all of your research, as you were learning about the story of Thomas Smallwood, how are you able to know for certain, or as certain as one could be, that this is the place and the person with whom this idea of the name, the Underground Railroad, that this is where it comes from? When I found Smallwood talking about the Underground Railroad as this kind of mythical transport system by which people were supposedly escaping slavery, I immediately went, like anybody else would, to Wikipedia. I found that there were some kind of folklore theories about where that phrase came from, but none of them held up to much scrutiny, and scholars really had not accepted any of them, and so therefore it was a bit of a historical mystery as to where this came from. 
So then I looked into the big digitized databases that now exist of 19th century newspapers and just put in that phrase Underground Railroad and was amazed to find that all of the early uses of Underground Railroad come from Smallwood's dispatches and from uh, pieces by his buddy Charles Torrey, who had become editor of that paper in Albany. So he picks up this phrase, the Underground Railroad, and he starts using it in his newspaper dispatches, essentially to beat up on the slaveholders and the slave catchers. It's one more way that he can mock them. So he starts riffing on it, and he appoints himself the general agent of all the branches of the National Underground Railroad. And, uh, and so he has a lot of fun with this, basically as one more way of sticking it to the slaveholders who are his enemies. But within a year or two, it gets picked up by other newspapers, and it gradually becomes a, a kind of way of referring to the escapes from slavery, especially those aided by folks in a network kind of up the line to the north. You know, it really strikes me listening to you describe the way that Tom Smallwood is writing about the enslaved and their owners, this mockery. Even though he's writing under a pseudonym, it seems like there's a great deal of risk inherent here with what he's doing. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. I mean, on top of sending these things off to the Albany paper, he asked the editors in Albany to send a copy of any newspaper that named a slaveholder to that slaveholder. These are people in D.C., Maryland, some, to some degree Virginia. And so these folks are sort of unsuspecting. They get this copy of a paper from Albany, New York. They open it up, and here they are being mocked publicly. And sometimes their brutality is exposed, and he insists that these newspapers be sent to the slaveholders. So it definitely got people riled up. I think one thing you can say is that in some ways his best disguise is the literary quality of these newspaper dispatches. I don't think anyone initially was, uh, who was stung by these newspaper pieces was thinking that this black shoemaker was their author. Were there any preconceived notions about the Underground Railroad that you were hoping to either interrogate or correct in your work? I think in our time, the Underground Railroad has become a polite way, a kind of kinder, gentler way of talking about the horrors of slavery, the crime of slavery. And in part, that's because it's a story of liberation. It's basically a good news story. And also, I think, because it provides a role for warm-hearted white people. And I guess going back and learning the story of, of Smallwood and in sort of some of the early years, you realize that this, first of all, was not at all institutionalized, not at all organized. This was small number of activists taking grave risks to uh, help people to freedom and a very, very dangerous thing and something that was seen by most abolitionists at the time as too dangerous. And so people like Thomas Smallwood were actually in the small minority, even of abolitionists, who would take the risks to make this, these kinds of escapes happen.
So many of us who grow up in this country, we're educated about slavery, about the Underground Railroad, but Thomas Smallwood's name is not one that comes up in that education. Why do you think that his name and this story that you've brought us is one that seems to be largely forgotten by history? You know, I think it's a combination of things. Thomas Smallwood, like the people he was sending north, eventually has to make his own very daring escape, and he ends up in Canada as well. Basically, his career as a writer ends with the exception of a short memoir that he writes in 1851. But there's also one other element which is somewhat darker, which is Charles Torrey, his partner in getting the escapes going, never credited Smallwood, even in private correspondence, with uh, really what was the far more important role in beginning to organize these escapes. Other writers at the time who would have been aware of Smallwood's role also did not credit him. And I think there was probably an element of racism in that. And so Smallwood just never gets credit. So his writings get kind of cast to the winds, and uh, he's busy earning a living. And, uh, you know, he just sort of, his story falls by the wayside. Scott Shane is the author of the book Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Minutes after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, Missouri's Republican leaders triggered one of the strictest abortion bans in the country, outlawing the procedure with no exceptions for rape or incest. Missouri's abortion rights activists are now rallying to take the issue directly to voters. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports. It's a weekday night at the pageant music venue in St. Louis, and hundreds of people are gathered here not to watch a band perform, but to sign a petition to legalize abortion in Missouri. It would return health care to women and their doctors where it fundamentally belongs. That's Enola Proctor. She was in her 20s in 1973 when the U.S. Supreme Court made abortion a constitutional right. I had college friends who had sought abortions, very unsafe ones, and so I felt then that women were safe. And it pains me to know that women are no longer safe. Missouri's law only allows abortion in the case of medical emergencies. If passed, the ballot measure would place language in the state constitution protecting abortion up until fetal viability, the point when a fetus could survive outside of the womb without extraordinary medical intervention. The group that spearheaded this initiative has raised millions of dollars and attracted thousands of volunteer signature gatherers like Lisa Williams. Missourians don't agree with this ban, and they want to take the matter into their own hands because the politicians have not listened to their will. Recent polling from Emerson College found that 44 percent of Missouri voters say abortion should be allowed as a personal choice. Kyle Kondik, a political analyst at the University of Virginia, says abortion politics aren't as simple as red state, blue state. You could see Republicans winning Missouri by 20 points for president, and yet this abortion issue could could very well end up passing, particularly because the current law in the books is so far away from what 
your average person's opinion is on abortion rights. After Roe versus Wade was overturned in 2022, voters in deeply red states like Kansas and Kentucky rejected anti-abortion rights measures. But Susan Klein of Missouri Right to Life says it's more complicated, pointing out that Missourians have voted in Republican lawmakers that are starkly against abortion rights. Missouri is a pro-life state. You see that in our supermajorities. You see that in uh, the statewide office holders. Some of those office holders are trying to put another hurdle before the ballot initiative. Missouri's Republican lawmakers are trying to place a measure on an earlier ballot that would make it harder to amend the state's constitution. Proponents like GOP State Senator Rick Bratton make no secret that the move is aimed at making the abortion initiative more unlikely to succeed. At this point, where there's so much at stake, gloves are off and, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to protect life and, and to ensure that our Constitution is, is protected. But efforts to make it harder to amend state constitutions failed in states like Arkansas and Ohio. Tori Schaefer with the American Civil Liberties Union of Missouri says she expects it will also fall flat here. Regardless of what politicians in Jefferson City decide, Missourians are going to see right through it either way. They're going to see it as a trick and a, a tool to try and take their, their right to direct democracy away. If backers of the abortion legalization initiative get roughly 171,000 signatures by early May, their proposal could go before voters either in August or November. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Hope you enjoyed the day today because we've got rain moving in for about the next 24 hours. Showers should start about 9 or 10 o'clock tonight. Should get down to about 49 degrees, and that's at the very lowest Tomorrow showers, some wild winds should turn warmer, up around 60 degrees tomorrow. Then for Thursday, temperatures fall only about 35 degrees, but at least it should be sunny once again. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. NASA is troubleshooting a glitch on Voyager 1, the first spacecraft to leave the solar system. Coming up at 540 on WBUR, why it would take a miracle to regain control of the craft. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Nurses say they are overworked and are asking lawmakers to limit the number of patients in their care. They also think that would help with the country's nursing shortage. I'm one of those nurses who would return to the bedside full time, and so many of my coworkers that have left would join me. But what do hospitals say? Find out tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The top four congressional leaders met with President Biden in the Oval Office today. A government shutdown is looming and funding for Ukraine's war effort is also on the line. Here's how House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, described it. Uh, It was an intense meeting. It was an honest meeting. And ultimately, it was a productive meeting. 
They came out optimistic about avoiding a shutdown, but with no clear path on the Ukraine aid. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith is here. Hi, Tam. Hi, Ari. Let's start with the optimism. There have been a few of these shutdown showdowns over the past year. Why were the leaders positive today? Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson said negotiators are quite close to an agreement to keep the government funded for the rest of the year, close enough that they were willing to express optimism. After the meeting, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell told reporters at the Capitol that things are moving in the right direction. Under no circumstances does anybody want to shut the government down, so I think we can stop that drama right here. That drama could stop right here right now, or it could flare up and all this optimism could go out the window, uh, which is a movie we have seen many times before. It sure is. So from the (laughs) relatively happy talk to the more difficult parts, how did the rest of the meeting go? The other big agenda item was finding a way to get military assistance to Ukraine. The White House says that Ukraine is running out of ammunition and it is already hurting them on the battlefield. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, has been to a lot of meetings at the White House over the years, but this is how he described this one. The meeting on Ukraine was one of the most intense I have ever encountered in my many meetings in the Oval Office. Ukraine is counting on military assistance from the U.S. And based on what everyone said coming out of that meeting, Johnson is a man on an island. Uh, But Speaker Johnson has given no indication that he's willing to let the House vote on Ukraine funding. Schumer, McConnell, the White House, they are all saying it is Johnson who controls the fate of this aid. Well, what is Speaker Johnson saying? He says the House needs to focus on the needs of Americans first. And by that, he means addressing the situation at the border, which now ranks as a top issue for voters from both parties. Uh, So Johnson said he's open to Ukraine aid, but he didn't commit to moving on it. I was very clear with the president and all those in the room that the House is actively uh, pursuing and uh, investigating all the various options on that. And we will address that in a timely manner. But again, the first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. Biden is going to visit the border on Thursday, as is former President Donald Trump, different part of the border. Uh, But that certainly drives home what is a very hot political issue. Uh, Johnson wants Biden to take executive action. The White House is not ruling that out, but they also insist that more funding is needed from Congress and policy changes, too. Uh, Now, you may remember that there had been a bipartisan Senate deal that combined these things, Ukraine aid and border security funding and the policy changes. Uh, But Johnson said it was dead on arrival and Trump demanded that Republicans oppose it. And Ari, if you get the feeling that this is all quite circular and that the assistance to Ukraine appears no closer to passing, uh, you would be right. NPR's Tamara Keith at the White House. I guess it's appropriate to say talk to you again soon. Sure thing. In Papua New Guinea last week, a clash between warring tribes led to the deaths of at least 49 tribesmen. The region has long struggled with tribal violence. The country is home to hundreds of different tribes. And linguistically, it is one of the world's most diverse countries. More than 800 languages are spoken there. In recent years, violence between tribes has turned much more deadly. Tim Swanston is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Papua New Guinea correspondent, and he's here to talk more about this situation. Welcome. Hi, Elsa. Hi. So as I mentioned, Papua New Guinea is home to hundreds of tribes. Can, can you just talk about the root of the tensions among many of them? Like, what are the underlying causes? What are they fighting over? 
Mm. It's, um, look, to be honest, a, a pretty challenging question to answer. I mean, Papua New Guinea is an incredibly diverse country with a very, very rich and vibrant history. And as you mentioned as well, many different languages, many different cultures. So tracing back, you know, the original origins of uh, some of this tribal fighting can be really difficult to do. Um, but many community leaders often refer to this tribal fighting as a practice that's effectively taken place for time immemorial. And why is that? Why is the violence getting deadlier? So it's basically the weapons in which it's been fought with. Of course, you know, Papua New Guinea uh, became an independent country in 1975. It was a former Australian territory. But so much of Papua New Guinea sort of remained unexplored from outsiders till about, say, 100 years ago or so. So tribal fighting was fought with very traditional customary weapons. You know, we're talking about bows and arrows, bush knives, these sorts of things. But certainly after um, world wars, as well as also since independence, more firearms have been making their way into Papua New Guinea's highlands. And that's really something that has been able to make these tribal fights far more deadly. And I understand that a lot of these firearms are coming in illegally into the country, right? Well, there's a bit of a mix. I mean, there's a lot of firearms that were purchased um, by PNG Defence as well as also PNG Police that appear to have effectively leaked out into tribes and villages. So there's a considerable amount of firearms that appear to have been missing from national stocks and the audits. Uh, we're talking M16s, AR-15s, you know, American-made weapons that were sold to PNG Defence um, that have made their way into the hands of communities. I want to step back a little bit because, you know, last May, President Biden was was going to become the only sitting U.S. president to ever visit Papua New Guinea. But he had to cancel at the last minute. He said he had to focus on debt limit talks in Washington. Meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping did visit the country back in 2018. Can you explain what's going on there? Like, why are both China and the U.S. so interested in this country? for countries like Australia and the United States, they've got a really clear interest to be partners with Papua New Guinea to assist with domestic problems. And as a result, they'll remain effectively a partner on the international stage. Their concern is that if they don't come in and assist, that countries like China will instead. And as a result, make that country much more susceptible to effectively be a uh, an ally of China on the larger stage. That is sort of the broad brushstrokes of kind of the, the larger competition we're seeing playing out in the Pacific Islands between the United States and China. So we're seeing very heavy investments from both the United States and Australia in PNG's internal security um, to make sure that they are resourcing and giving it the attention that it deserves effectively in that almost hedging game against China. Tim Swanston is the Papua New Guinea correspondent for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Thank you very much for adding context to this. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org.
from ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series of Boston with Orchestre de Paris, including Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, March 17th at Symphony Hall, celebrityseries.org. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's Election Day in Michigan today. While Democrats don't have a contested primary in the state, there is contention among Democratic voters about the future of the party. Polls close in three hours in Michigan. Today is Tuesday, February 27th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth has introduced a bill to protect access to in vitro fertilization, IVF, after the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. It's very clear that Republicans believe that a fertilized egg has more rights than a woman and that they do not support IVF, no matter what they're saying. The senator talks to us about her personal experience with IVF. Also, the assertion that the failures of the Iraq war could be boiled down to miscommunications. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden met today with top members of Congress, imploring them to act quickly to avoid a looming potential government shutdown. During the meeting, Biden also called on lawmakers to move quickly to pass emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries speaking after the meeting said a bipartisan agreement to extend funding bills needs to happen. This is an existential moment for the free world as it relates to being there for our democratic allies in Ukraine, in Israel, and in the Indo-Pacific. Biden's push comes as legislative logjam in the Republican-controlled Congress shows little signs of easing. Congressional leaders also urge quick action to keep the government running, with the shutdown possibly looming as soon as early next month. President Biden is facing a campaign for Michigan Democrats to, who voted on, to vote on or voting uncommitted in today's presidential primary. Michigan Public Radio Network's Colin Jackson has more. Groups have been calling on voters to choose uncommitted on their ballot as a way of protesting President Biden's support of Israel in its war with Hamas in Gaza. Lansing, Michigan resident Ali Salim Ali was one of those uncommitted voters. He says Biden's at risk of losing his whole family's vote in November. Just call ceasefire and you will have our vote. If you don't call ceasefire, we will stay home. Other Michigan Democratic voters say they're still going with Biden, arguing a vote against him could strengthen former President Donald Trump's odds of retaking the White House. Trump is expected to win over former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in the Republican primary election. 
For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson. America's first mission to the surface of the moon in more than 50 years is drawing to a close. As NPR's Jeff Bromfell explains, the robotic probe is beaming back images, but running out of power. The lander, known as Odysseus, was supposed to operate for about a week, but as it touched down on the moon's surface last Thursday, it unexpectedly tipped over onto its side. Intuitive Machines, the Houston-based company that built Odysseus, was able to make contact, but they say the lander is not getting as much solar power as they'd hoped. In a post to social media, the company said it expects the little lander to run out of juice in a matter of hours. Despite the early end to the mission, Odysseus is still the first American-built probe to generate land on the moon in over half a century. NASA is paying several companies to try and reach the lunar surface, a strategy it hopes will spur innovation. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Retailer Macy's in a continuing bid for survival has announced plans to close another 150 of its stores over the next three years, including 50 by the end of this year. The company just posted a fourth quarter loss in declining sales numbers. At the same time, Macy says it aims to upgrade its remaining 350 stores, pivoting to the more upscale side of the business. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow fell 96 points. The Nasdaq rose 59 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is suing the town of Milton for failing to comply with the state's MBTA communities law. The law requires cities and towns to allow zoning for multifamily housing near MBTA stops. Milton lawmakers approved a new zoning plan last year, but voters overturned the measure with a referendum earlier this month. Attorney General Campbell says she's asking the state's Supreme Judicial Court to force Milton into compliance. This is mandatory. We have a housing crisis. And because you have a public good and public transit in your community, you have to come into compliance with this critical piece of legislation that was passed by a bipartisan effort to address our housing crisis. Milton's town administrator says he looks forward to defending the town against the AG's lawsuit. The state's deputy education commissioner will take over the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on an interim basis. Russell Johnston will take over from outgoing Commissioner Jeff Riley when Riley steps down March 15th. Johnston was previously a special education teacher, administrator, and superintendent in West Springfield. The process to select a permanent commissioner will begin next month. The city of Boston hopes to install hundreds of new curbside electric vehicle chargers. Details were unveiled today at a meeting of the city council's Ways and Means Committee. The proposal calls for about 250 chargers to be put in place over the next two years at no cost to the city. It's part of a public-private partnership with two companies. The city is currently finalizing contracts with those companies. And a portrait of Abigail Adams will be unveiled at the state Senate lobby on Friday. Adams was born in Weymouth and was the nation's second first lady. Her husband, John Adams, was president at the end of the 19th century. She'll become just the second woman honored with a portrait in the Senate. Current Senate President Karen Spilka says Adams' portrait is part of her effort to expand representation in who is honored at the State House. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for rain to move in. Winds picking up pretty warm, temperatures about 49 degrees. And for tomorrow, the rain keeps coming. High winds as well could reach 45 miles an hour at times, temperatures all the way up to 60 degrees. And then for Thursday, the wet weather ends early, sunshine returns, still windy and suddenly a lot colder, only in the mid-30s on Thursday. 54 degrees now in Boston at 506. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Are frozen embryos objects or people? Since the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that they are unborn children, fertility clinics in the state have put in vitro fertilization or IVF treatments on pause. And Democrats are using the decision to hammer Republicans on reproductive rights. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois has introduced a bill to protect access to IVF, and she's also a co-chair of the Biden-Harris re-election campaign. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me on. If you don't mind beginning with your personal story, can you tell us about your own family's experience with IVF? Yes. So post my wartime service in Iraq, I struggled for about 10 years uh, with infertility attempting to conceive Um, And it was only through IVF um, that I was able to have my two beautiful girls, Abigail and Miley Pearl. Um, uh, But it took 10 years for Abigail to be born and um, uh, uh, and many, many cycles of fertility treatments to get to the point where I have these gorgeous girls. So you know what goes into this firsthand from personal experience. Yes. And, And the Alabama Supreme Court ruling does not outlaw IVF explicitly, but people who destroy frozen embryos could be prosecuted. Now, the state attorney general put out a statement saying he does not intend to go after IVF families or providers in Alabama. But where do you think this leaves the procedure? Well, this leaves a procedure in a place where you can't actually move forward with it. Um, you can't just rely on one attorney general, you know, who's got a limited term, right? This this lays a foundation for basically outlawing anything that involves the destruction of a fertilized egg. And it's the natural progression of uh, where we are with the fall of Roe v. Wade um, and then this movement towards um, identifying a fertilized egg as uh, a a human being with uh, more rights than the woman that's going to carry that fertilized egg. Uh, And so I've been talking about this for years now. And uh, this bill that I'm introducing tomorrow, I've introduced before and said, listen, we have a problem here because, you know, in my case, we fertilized five eggs. Three of them were deemed non-viable. Um, and we discarded the three non-viable because if I were to implant those, I would have had a miscarriage with all three eggs. And, and my doctor in 2013 said, Tammy, with these personhood um, amendments, these personhood definitions that these groups are pushing for, I could be convicted of manslaughter or murder for throwing out those three non-viable eggs. And, you would, and, and, and so we could no longer practice reproductive medicine. Well, as you say, you've been, been introducing bills like the latest one since before the Alabama Supreme Court ruling came down. Since that decision was issued, have you heard from your Republican colleagues? Have you spoken with people like Senator Susan Collins of Maine or Independent Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, for example? Well, I've spoken with them on this for well over four years now. And since the Alabama Supreme Court decision, uh, uh, it's been crickets. I've not heard from a single Republican um, that I've contacted uh, asking if they would uh, co-sponsored this. And so they've not come back to me since the decision. And by the way, the one Republican, there's a House bill um, that's the companion to my Senate bill. The one Republican that's on it is actively working to get herself taken off the bill uh, right now. Um, so we, it's very clear that Republicans believe that a fertilized egg Uh, has more rights than a woman and that they do not support IVF, no matter what they're saying. Well, but Donald Trump has said he supports IVF. So has Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and other Republican leaders. And so how do you square your saying that they all clearly oppose this with the public statements they've been making? Well, they've also made public statements supporting and and taking credit in Donald Trump's case for uh, the fall of Roe v. Wade. They take full credit. Donald Trump takes full credit for uh, supporting the repealing of Roe v. Wade. Uh, so you can't have both. 
it's hypocritical to say that you do you, you do both. And in fact, there are more Republicans sign on to a bill that defines uh, legislatively that a fertilized egg is a human being than there are any Republicans. There are no Republicans on this bill that guarantees the right to access to reproductive technology. But there are well over 100 Republicans on a bill that says a fertilized egg is a human being. We're having this conversation in the morning, and Alabama lawmakers could introduce legislation as soon as today to protect IVF in the state. That effort is being led by Republicans. Are you happy to see them potentially take that step? No, because they're covering their butts on this. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I spent 23 years in the army, so <laughs> you have to watch my language. They're just trying to cover themselves. They're the ones that, that pass the legislation. They're the ones that put these, supreme, these very extreme Supreme Court justices on the bench that are uh, passing these, these, uh, these rulings. And by the way, it's not just Alabama. Women all across, families all across this country uh, are, are not protected in terms of their access to reproductive health care. Uh, Texas Right to Life, Ari, uh, has said, uh, their leadership has said that they want control of all the embryos. And on their webpage, they said that the only way they would support IVF is if every single uh, embryo that's created is implanted, meaning that if you have non-viable embryos, those have to be implanted too, which you know would lead to a miscarriage. And, only the, and even then, they would only be neutral. Amy Coney Barrett, our Supreme Court justice, supported... St. Joseph right to, County right to life who oppose IVF. So this is not just about one state and one Republican state politician who wants to try to cover his, his butt on, on, on this. This is about the fact that Republicans across the nation have for decades now worked as hard as they can to give rights to a fertilized egg that are far greater than a living, breathing human being and to take away women's access to reproductive health care. I'm generalizing here, but many Republicans seem to be saying, we can oppose abortion and support IVF. And I hear you saying reproductive rights are reproductive rights, and and, and you can't pick and choose. Is it possible that that's going to get in the way of your efforts to build bipartisan support for this IVF bill that you want to see pass? I've been trying to build bipartisan support for well over four years, and they're not coming forward. They, It's not about uh, their, their limiting access to abortion. It's about them defining a fertilized egg as a human being, as, and, and that that is the basis on which they are limiting access to abortion. Roe v. Wade had, had limits to abortion, uh, but Republicans were not satisfied with that. They wanted to define a human being as, as, as beginning the minute an egg is fertilized, which, by the way, also prohibits not just IVF, but, for example, uh, IUDs, uh, a contraception that prevents the implantation of a fertilized egg. Uh, and, and you're seeing physicians all across this country who are now unable to practice medicine. You're losing, we're losing OBGYNs because they can't do their jobs and, and take care of women uh, with these laws that are being passed all across the country that takes away the ability for them to uh, uh, watch out for and, and take care of women's health care. You know, in the years since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Democrats have found that reproductive rights are consistently a winning issue whenever the question is on the ballot. As I mentioned, you are a co-chair of the Biden-Harris re-election campaign. And I know that for the personal reasons we've discussed, you object to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling. But is there also a part of you that sees it as a political gift to your party in an election year? I don't think the women in Alabama who have, uh, are having their access to IVF block see this as a political issue. They see this as a very deeply personal issue. But as co-chair of the Biden-Harris campaign, is there any part of you that (laughs) thinks you could use this? Well, as chair of the Biden-Harris campaign, I can tell you this. Joe Biden has been the biggest supporter of women's right to reproductive health care. 
He's been consistent uh, in terms of supporting women's right to make their own reproductive health care decisions. And so let's make it clear what the choices are. The guy who took down Roe v. Wade uh, or the man who's been standing up for women's rights uh, for decades now. I'm glad that I'm a Biden Harris co-chair because I know where Joe Biden stands. It's with women and families. That is Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democrat of Illinois. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And as promised, Alabama State Senator Tim Melson did introduce his IVF legislation today. His bill addresses immunity from prosecution for providers, but it does not do anything to change Alabama's current definition of a frozen embryo as a child. Stay with NPR as we follow this story. Even by Alaska standards, Anchorage has seen a lot of snow this winter. The record snowfall is overwhelming snow removal crews. It's been shutting down schools for days and contributing to a spate of roof collapses. Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea has the story. Chad Hansen just used a big forklift to deliver three snowblowers to the flat roof of this one-story office building. The snow is thigh-deep up here and literally weighs tons. It's a blue-sky day, but with the blowers flinging snow into the air, the strip malls nearby look like they're in a snow globe. Oh, this is just fun, isn't it? Yeah. Did that one last night, now this one today. Hanson owns General Roofing Company. This scruffy crew has been busy since November, and now they're short a few guys. Hanson says they've been getting worn out. There's a snow scoop right there, man. Jump right on in. 30 uh, bucks an gonna, hour, I'll get you up here. I get, well, oh, 30 bucks an hour, maybe. We get a side gig, maybe. Hey, you know, there's a lot of it to go around right now, you know? Yeah. At the end of January, Anchorage already had more than 100 inches of snow for the season, about twice the average up to that point. It was the earliest the city of about 290,000 has ever crossed that mark. Last winter was also unusually snowy, and since then at least 19 roofs have collapsed. One of them killed a woman at her CrossFit gym at about this time last winter. Daniel King is a city engineer who's been investigating the roof failures. So it's an evolving situation where we're trying to move as quickly as the situation is growing, as the danger grows. His office recently mailed out more than 7,000 notices to property owners and their tenants to warn them that their roofs might have the same kind of supports they've been seeing fail. Michelle Parton is visiting Anchorage in part because of the snow. She's checking out Snowzilla, a gigantic two-story snowman, a local built in his yard on a suburban street. She's from Redmond, Washington, where... It's been so warm that we don't really feel like we had a winter. And so to come up here and to see all your snow and your mountains is so amazing. Even though February hasn't been very snowy, there are still snow berms along roads and sidewalks all over town that are taller than most people. And there's more snow in the forecast. For NPR News, I'm Jeremy Shea in Anchorage. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 25 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR, Fresno, California has some of the worst air quality in the nation. Residents are placing their hopes on a set of new stricter rules on air pollution that could help their health eventually. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. A mixed show on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped a quarter of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq ended on the upside. S&P gained nearly two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq pulled in almost four-tenths of a percent. Unionized nurses at Beth Israel Leahy and at Jake's Hospital in Newburyport have overwhelmingly voted to approve a three-year contract. The union says the contract will increase wages and benefits and allow the hospital to recruit staff and improve patient care. More than 350 registered nurses work at Anna Jake's Hospital. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Thirst. Two Irish immigrants search for a place to call home in this drama by Ronan Noon. Now through March 17th, lyricstage.com. Listeners have the chance to attend the upcoming open meeting of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit wbur.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. That's wbur.org slash open meetings. Mighty nice day for late February, but things should change tonight as winds pick up and rain comes down. A warm night tonight in the upper 40s. By the way, if it reaches 50 degrees tonight, we'll have tied the record set in 1990. Tomorrow, wind-driven showers pretty much all day long. Highs could reach 60 degrees. Then for Thursday, the winds could get stronger, but the rain pulls back. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How did the U.S. get it so wrong in the run-up to war in Iraq, insisting that then-Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein was hiding secret stashes of weapons of mass destruction? And why didn't Saddam set the record straight, especially as it looked increasingly certain in the months after 9-11 that the U.S. and its allies were about to start a war he was likely to lose? Well, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Steve Call takes on those questions in his new book, The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me back. Why does the world need another book on the origins of the Iraq War? I'm just thinking there are so many wars, so many crises demanding our attention right now in 2024. Why did you feel it was important to go back to this? Well, because the Iraq War was one of the biggest events in American post-war history. And I think there's a much wider story to tell about why it happened. I was hoping that enough time had passed from the kind of traumas that we all endured around the war about the discovery that Saddam did not have WMD, that we could go back and ask a question that really wasn't asked at the time, which is, why did Saddam create the impression that he had WMD when he did not? Why did he sacrifice his long reign in power, ultimately his life, for weapons he didn't possess? And the question is answerable because it turns out that he tape recorded his leadership conversations more assiduously than Richard Nixon. Like and 2,000 that was the hours basis. of them, right? Yeah, he had the tape running for decades in these meetings. And 
you know, sadly, the materials aren't publicly available, but with help from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, I filed a FOIA suit against the Pentagon, got a batch of them, and that became a way to really enlarge our understanding of the origins of the war. What's that like all these years later to hear Saddam on tape as he's leading meetings and making decisions? Well, it was eerie to be inside his head for what amounted to years of research. And he was more charismatic. Uh, he had more of a presence, even a sense of humor than I expected. Um, he was uh, rambled a lot. Of course, his comrades didn't dare to interrupt him. So he would talk uninterrupted for 10 or 15 minutes about world affairs. And the striking thing about him over and over was that he could be incredibly shrewd about power which he managed to retain in a very difficult environment for a long time. And then in the next paragraph, he could be completely confused about how the world was organized and where he fit. Mm. And so this kind of toggling between insight and kind of confusion was part of the experience of being inside his room and inside his head for so long. So to the central question you just told us you set out to answer, if Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction, why on earth would he subject himself, his country, to a war he was going to lose? Understanding the answer is complex and that you're you know, answering it over the hundreds of pages of this book. Can you give us the top lines? Yeah, I think partly it was that he was afraid that if he admitted he didn't have the weapons, he would be attacked, attacked by external enemies, Iran, Israel. He feared that perpetually. Also, perhaps attacked by his own generals because he feared a coup and spent much of his life trying to prevent one successfully. Pride was another factor. He sought glory in the Arab world. He saw himself as this necessary and sort of world historical leader. And to admit that he had disarmed himself almost voluntarily just was humiliating and he wasn't going to do it. I think a more interesting reason for us as Americans looking back on the history is that he also thought, especially toward the end, that the CIA and American intelligence knew already that he didn't have the weapons because, of course, they know everything. They are omniscient. And because he figured that they already knew this, he interpreted the accusations that he was harboring WMD as just a game, a plot an excuse to overthrow him. And he thought, you know, why should I play their game? Fascinating. So it's a case of both sides overestimating what the other knew, what the other had. Yeah. I mean, the idea of a, of a CIA that was capable of a big analytical mistake, like saying that Iraq still possessed WMD, it's just not part of his worldview. He wouldn't have believed it if you told him that it was true. Speaking of living in a somewhat alternate universe, you also note that Saddam spent much of his time in the run-up to war, including like two days before American bombs started falling. He was focused on writing a novel? He was, yeah, he wrote four novels in the last few years of his regime. I mean, it was a remarkable thing to encounter in the research that after 9-11, we didn't recognize that he was in some respects not the same Saddam that we had known back when he invaded Kuwait in 1990 and turned the world upside down. He was in his 60s and he had decided that his legacy lay in literature and he was writing novel after novel. He published the first couple to great fanfare and wonderful reviews in Iraq. Uh, of course, nobody dared say anything other than that he was brilliant. And I talked to one of his editors 
who would get these handwritten pages from him in Arabic. And he would ask, please turn the pages back to me with notes about improvements. And they would occasionally correct his rambling sentences. And then he would not take their suggestions. <laughs> At a certain point, they decided, <laughs> maybe we should just stop making suggestions <laughs> and uh, uh, just clean it up and get it to the printer. As you've reflected on all of this history, any lessons you would take from the trouble that U.S. leaders had in trying to predict Saddam's unpredictable decision-making that might be useful today, you know, to current U.S. leaders trying to deal with unpredictable decision-makers in Russia, in North Korea, beyond? Yeah, I think the paradox is that you do have to make an effort to understand how the world looks from behind their eyes. It's uncomfortable. These are difficult people to empathize with and even to collect enough information about to accurately assess. But the effort is necessary, and I think contact is necessary in order to collect information about what their motivations are, what their intentions may be. But the other side of it is they're erratic enough, Saddam was erratic enough, that you wouldn't want to rely on your judgment about his intentions to to protect American national security on that basis. You, you really have to focus on somebody's capabilities, not their intentions, because you may well get their intentions wrong and trust in deterrence. The most striking thing about the history with Saddam is that for all of his bombast, for all of his reckless actions, he invaded two countries without provocation, Iran in 1980 and Kuwait in 1990. For all of that, he was deterrable. If you sent him a clear message that if you do this, you're going to lose your regime, your life, your liberty, he would take notice. He didn't want to sacrifice his power. And a lot of the failure was about not sending clear and credible deterrence messages to him. He said in prison afterwards, you know, if you didn't want me to invade Kuwait, why didn't you tell me? We've been speaking with Steve Call. He's an editor at The Economist and author of the new book, The Achilles Trap. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the story of the scientists who helped launch gerontology, the study of aging, and how we started viewing aging as a disease. This afternoon, Red Sox and St. Louis Cardinals ended in a 3-3 tie down in spring training. Boston Bruins shoot for their ninth win in a row tonight as they take on their division rivals, the Philadelphia 76ers. Tip-off at the Garden is 7.30. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And New Art Center in Newton with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this spring at newartcenter.org. Nurses say they are overworked and are asking lawmakers to limit the number of patients in their care. They also think that would help with the country's nursing shortage. I'm one of those nurses who would return to the bedside full time. And so many of my coworkers that have left would join me. But what do hospitals say? Find out tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. 
Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Top congressional leaders in both parties expressed optimism today that they could reach a deal before Friday to avoid a partial government shutdown. But they remain divided on providing additional funding to Ukraine, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnston, uh, Johnson insisting that addressing the situation at the border needs to be the top priority. Here's what President Biden had to say after the meeting. Congress's responsibility from the government. We've got to get about doing a shutdown would damage the economy significantly. And I think we all agree to that. And we need a bipartisan solution. The House Minority Leader says there may need to be a bipartisan agreement to extend several funding bills slated to lapse next week to give more time for funding talks to continue. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters he wants to avoid a shutdown and remain, uh, and the remaining issues were not insurmountable. Missouri's abortion rights activists are optimistic about using a ballot initiative to overturn a strict abortion ban, but as Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio tells us, GOP lawmakers want to make it harder to achieve that goal. Organizers say thousands of volunteers are gathering signatures to legalize abortion in Missouri. But GOP lawmakers like Senator Rick Bratton want voters to approve an earlier ballot item, making it harder to amend the state constitution to keep most abortions illegal. We're willing to do whatever it takes to protect life and, and to ensure that our constitution is, is protected. Tori Schaefer of the ACLU of Missouri expects that GOP plan to fall flat. Regardless of what politicians in Jefferson City decide, Missourians are going to see right through it either way. If organizers get enough signatures, Missourians will vote on the abortion legalization plan either in August or November. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in Jefferson City. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report is breaking down the ways systemic racism and slavery have affected black Bostonians today. The report is from the nonprofit Embrace Boston. That's the group behind the Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King statue on Boston Common. The report says systemic racism shows up in inequities in wealth, housing, transportation, and health. This comes as the City of Boston's task force is exploring the idea of reparations to the families of enslaved people. Embrace Boston's Elizabeth DeBlanc says she hopes this report can help guide that task force's work. What we encourage the city to do is to use this as a guide, as an articulation tool to see what the growth has been. How far have we come with this racial equity work and also currently what are still areas within each harm area that haven't been addressed. The report's recommendations include cash payments, more investment in low-income schools, and police reform. Governor Moore Healy wants to keep the state's life sciences initiative going for another decade. She told business leaders at the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce this morning she will recommend it as part of an economic development bill she plans to file this week. Chamber President and CEO Jim Rooney says the governor appears to be listening to the business community. If the R&D is going on in Boston and Cambridge and the manufacturing going on in Greater Worcester or Greater Springfield, you know, there's no plane trips involved in visiting the factory site and the synergies to having them close that create cost advantages. 
Governor Healy did not mention a possible cost. When the Life Sciences Initiative began in 2008 and included a $1 billion investment over 10 years. A new study finds that the state minimum wage is not keeping up with the cost of living in Massachusetts. The MIT research shows that an individual in the Bay State would have to earn almost $28 an hour to meet basic needs. The minimum wage here is $15 an hour. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science with the new exhibit, Changing Landscapes, showing how innovation helps us adapt to a changing climate. Now through May 5th, mos.org. Mighty nice day for late February, but things will change tonight as winds pick up and the rain comes down. Should be a warm night in the upper 40s. And then for tomorrow, showers, some wild winds, about 60 degrees for a high. Thursday temperatures fall, only about 35 degrees, but at least it should be sunny once again. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It is presidential primary day in Michigan. On the Democratic side, President Biden faces little competition, but there is a group choosing to vote uncommitted. NPR's Elena Moore is here to talk about the movement behind that. Hey, Elena. Hey there. Okay, so walk us through what this uncommitted campaign entails. Right. So it's called Listen to Michigan. It started actually less than a month ago, largely by Arab and Muslim organizers in their 20s and 30s. And many of them are from Dearborn, which is a city pretty close to Detroit, where Mm -hmm. more than half the population is of Middle Eastern or North African descent. And the campaign is basically demanding Biden call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and stop sending U.S. aid to Israel. Of course, we know that Biden announced just yesterday that a potential temporary ceasefire may be coming soon, but that is not sufficient to these organizers, and they tell me it doesn't change their message here. Okay, well, as Biden and his campaign have been watching this primary, I mean, what what are the stakes in particular in Michigan for them, especially after today? Right. I mean, well, listen to Michigan. The campaign is hoping they can get at least 10,000 uncommitted votes. That was around the margin Hillary Clinton lost to by, you know, to Trump in 2016. (laughs) And of course, that 10,000 number is much, much smaller than Biden's campaign margin in 2020, which was more like 150,000 votes. But, you know, this campaign, the Listen to Michigan campaign, could be a real test for Biden. Ever since Israel's war on Gaza started, factions of his Democratic base that helped him win in 2020 in Michigan have been really angry and hurt by the president not calling for a stop to this violence. And, you know, an important note, Elsa, many of these advocates actually voted for Biden in 2020, and they call themselves Democrats, a lot of them. But the point of this campaign is about changing Biden's policy. It's not necessarily swearing him off in November as of now. Okay. Well, I know, Alina, that you've been speaking with a lot of these voters the past several days in Michigan. What are you hearing specifically from them? I've been in the Detroit metro area talking really 
specifically with younger voters. Okay. I met 31-year-old Morgan Newald coming out of her polling place in Ferndale, which is a suburb of Detroit. I usually vote Democratic Party because Republicans don't have my interests in mind, um, but I'm finding out that Democrats don't either. You know, she voted uncommitted because protecting the human rights of others is her top priority, she said. And she told me she's done with Biden. She will not be voting for him in November. For, for others I spoke with, there's more of a general disappointment in Biden as the 2024 choice. Here's 24-year-old Michaela Stevens. You know, she told me that Biden hasn't really followed through on his promises, like, for example, widespread student loan forgiveness, a move that was halted by the Supreme Court. I feel like that was really embarrassing, like to say the least. It was really like a slap in the face. Um, I am $40,000 in student debt right now, all simply for an education that hasn't really put me in front of my peers so far. Mm. And when we talked this weekend, Stevens told me she was weighing voting uncommitted, arguing there are a bunch of problems in the U.S. that Biden should focus on instead of helping Israel. And real quick, Elena, before we let you go, what's been happening on the Republican side of things in Michigan? Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley actually had two rallies in the state leading up to today, but now she's headed to some Super Tuesday states, and Haley has promised to continue through Super Tuesday, which, spoiler alert, is a week from today. Um, <laughs> and as for former President Donald Trump, who is expected to win the Republican primary tonight, he participated in a virtual rally last night, and a campaign official tells me that he plans to call into the Michigan GOP Victory Party tonight. That is NPR's Elena Moore in Detroit. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. The Voyager 1 spacecraft rocketed off our planet in 1977. It's now about 15 billion miles away. That's farther out than any other object made by humans. And the spacecraft still talks to Earth. But as NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, lately its messages don't make any sense. Voyager 1's problem started a few months ago, back in mid-November. Suzanne Dodd is the Voyager project manager. It basically stopped talking to us in a coherent manner. The spacecraft is just sending back alternating ones and zeros. Her team has tried the usual tricks to try to reset things with no luck. It looks like there's a problem with the onboard computer that takes information and packages it up to send home. Dodd says this technology is primitive compared to, say, a car key fob. The button you press to open the door of your car, that has more compute power than the Voyager spacecrafts do. You know, it's, it's remarkable that they keep flying and, they, and that they've flown for 46-plus years. Voyager 1 and its twin, Voyager 2, have outlived many of those who designed and built them. To try to fix Voyager 1's current woes, the dozen or so people on Dodd's team have had to pour over yellowed documents and old mimeographs. They're doing a lot of work to try and get into the heads of the original developers and figure out why they designed something the way they did and what we could possibly try uh, that might give us um, some answers to what's going wrong with the spacecraft. She says they have a list of things to try. Since their go-to approaches haven't worked, they'll have to take measures that are more bold and risky. This could take weeks, months of sending commands to the spacecraft. Voyager 1 is so distant, it takes almost a whole day for a signal to travel out there, then a whole day for its response to return. So we'll keep trying, and um, it won't be quick. 
In the meantime, Voyager 1's discombobulation is a bummer for researchers like Stella Ocker. She's with Caltech and the Carnegie Observatories. We haven't been getting science data since this anomaly started. And what that means is that we don't know what the environment that the spacecraft is traveling through looks like. That environment isn't just empty darkness. There's gases, dust, cosmic rays. Only the twin Voyager probes are far away enough to sample this cosmic stew. And only Voyager 1 is still able to take the particular measurements she needs. So the science that I'm really interested in doing is actually only possible with Voyager 1. Now, she wasn't even born when the Voyagers launched. For other scientists who've been with the Voyager program from the start, Voyager 1 is like an old, dear friend who suddenly has been hit with a terrible illness. Well, frankly, I'm very worried. Tom Kremegis is with the Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab. My motto for a long time was 50 years or bust. <laughs> but uh, we're sort of approaching that. So even if this current crisis gets solved, in a couple of years, the ebbing power supply will force managers to start turning off science instruments one by one. The very last instrument might keep going until 2030. After that, Kremija says both of these legendary space probes will basically become space junk. Pains me to say that. And while the spacecraft will keep moving outward, each carrying a set of golden records that have recorded greetings in many languages, Kremijus doubts that any alien will ever stumble across Voyager and have a listen. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Environmental Protection Agency recently tightened rules on one type of dangerous air pollution. That could help clean up the air in some of the country's most polluted places, like the San Joaquin Valley in California. NPR's Alejandra Barunda met with people there who hope the rules will help clean up pollution. Outside what's called the Big Red Church in Fresno, California, 30 adults are blowing big, wobbly, rainbow-colored bubbles into the air. And everyone is just blowing bubbles with their wands. Everyone here knows that Fresno has some of the worst air in the country. And on this February day, they're here to learn more about it. The bubbles are stand-ins for harmful tiny particles called soot, or sometimes PM2.5. They're often produced from things like burning fossil fuels, industrial activity, and agriculture. In the next three days, the air is not really going to move. That's Tim Dye. He's an air pollution expert with the environmental consulting firm TD Environmental Services. We're seeing that right now in the bubbles. They're not moving rapidly away from us. Bubbles are like particles, right? They're starting to accumulate more and more here. Pollution from soot and other tiny particles behave just like the bubbles. They can build up in the air, and then people breathe them in. They're so tiny, they can go from the lungs into the bloodstream. That drives inflammation, which causes lots of health problems, from asthma to heart disease. Earlier this month, the EPA tightened the limits for soot pollution, a move the agency says will save thousands of lives by 2032. Health researchers and advocates are excited. That is a big step forward for public health. That's Sarah Adar. She's a researcher at the University of Michigan. She was at an international conference when she heard the EPA's news. I put it into my talk because I was so excited. I was like, and in amazing news, you know. 
but some new science suggests the new limit might not go far enough. Two new studies look at millions of hospitalization records in the U.S. Pollution levels well below the new standard were linked to millions of health problems, including heart attacks, aneurysms, and respiratory emergencies. Yao Wang Wei led one of the studies. He's a researcher at Harvard. He says the message isn't complicated. We found that there's no safe level. Both studies also reinforce a grim reality, explains Reagan Patterson. She's an air pollution expert at UCLA in California. What we see in study after study and longitudinally over time is that disparities persist where particularly people of color are disproportionately exposed to PM 2.5. That feels very real to the group here in Fresno. Joe Liu from the Coalition for Clean Air asks a question. I'd like to just everyone who has asthma stand up here. Seven people get to their feet. How about if your mother, father, brother, sister, or son, or daughter have asthma? Stand up. Stay up. Pretty soon, everyone in the room, about 30 people, is standing up. Araceli Sanabria was one of the first to get up. She lives in a particularly polluted part of Fresno. Weeks or months can go by with air pollution levels higher than the EPA standards. Two of her kids already suffer from breathing issues. Sanabria said her daughter has asthma and her son is developing symptoms. She wants the city to put more parks and green spaces in her neighborhood, like there are in more affluent parts of the city. In contrast, she says her neighborhood is full of industrial plants and warehouses, with diesel trucks driving in and out. And, she says, There are new industrial projects being proposed. So she's interested in the EPA's new rules. But Sanabria says she'll reserve judgment until she sees the air pollution in her own neighborhood get better. I'm Alejandra Borunda for NPR News in Fresno, California. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the state of Florida is facing a measles outbreak among school children, but it's not encouraging people to get vaccinated. Despite decades of evidence, it keeps measles contained. That story coming up in about 20 minutes and much more ahead here at WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. And Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about one man's gender transition amid a pivotal American political moment. Now through March 10th, amrep.org. State transportation officials are warning of delays on 95 southbound in Waltham tonight. Crews will be back out to do work on the bridge at Route 20 starting at 8 o'clock tonight. They're repairing the bridge deck that was damaged yesterday. Two right lanes will be closed through 5 tomorrow morning. Again, that's on Route 95 southbound in Waltham. Take a break this evening and play WBUR's Daily Crossword Puzzle. One of today's clues, five letters. If you have one of these, make it airtight. Play the puzzle at wbur.org slash fun. Wet weather is moving in tonight. Showers after 9 o'clock. Strong winds, relatively warm temperatures, up about 49 degrees at the lowest tonight. Tomorrow, more rain, really windy and pretty warm. Temperatures pushing 60. Thursday, rain ends early. Then we should have mainly sunny skies. Still windy, but a lot colder. A high of about 35 degrees. 52 now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. 
You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For centuries, people have been obsessed with staying young and even living forever. We spend billions of dollars on anti-aging products. We're told to look younger. We question whether older people are fit to lead. Well, NPR's history podcast, Throughline, brings us the story of the scientist who helped launch gerontology, the study of aging and how we started viewing aging as a disease. Producer Devin Katayama takes it from here. In late 19th century Europe, Eli Mechnikov believed that getting old meant suffering. The images and narratives about growing older were more and more negative as the Industrial Revolution was changing how families lived and worked. Many elderly people were getting left behind, and caring for them came to be seen as a burden. But Mechnikov, who was a prominent scientist at the time, found that many elderly people didn't want to die. They wanted to live. He developed a whole philosophy that uh, there was this big disharmony in, in the world, you know, in nature, between the shortness of human life and people's desire to live. This is Luba Vakonsky, author of Immunity, How Eli Mechnikov Changed the Course of Modern Medicine. He was very famous. He was one of the most famous scientists uh, in the world. Mechnikov was an immunologist who'd go on to win a Nobel Prize, and he came to believe that aging was a disease that could be cured. Mechnikov was hardcore. I mean, the man drank cholera in the name of science. He tested the body's power and its limits at a time when there was real promise in what science could accomplish. He thought that a solution to everything was science. So of course, science was uh, going to solve aging as well. Science alone can lead suffering humanity into the right path. Mechnikov was born in Russia and was now studying medicine in Paris. By the time he started working on aging, he was in his mid-50s, above the life expectancy at the time. And he started having kidney problems. And he began to worry about his own aging. And he also began to fear death. He'd been working out of the Pasteur Institute, which was home to the miracle makers of the day. Scientists were researching vaccination or figuring out what caused plague. And he was conducting all kinds of experiments on animals. He even studied his own gray hair. And then he zeroes in on this one idea, that the body was being poisoned. He thought that the root of aging, that it all started in the intestines. Specifically, the large intestine. The presence of large intestine in the human body is the cause of a series of misfortunes. The idea that something bad was happening in the intestines is one that dates back thousands of years. So this wasn't necessarily a new idea. But in the late 19th century, it was making a comeback because science was making new links to germs and disease. So Meshnikov thought that in the intestines, there are microbes that cause rotting and that the rotting is what really causes the deterioration of aging. So the big question became how to fight that. And then one day he had a breakthrough, which he soon shared with the world. 
At a lecture in Paris in 1904, Metchnikoff was the keynote speaker. And he started by painting a grim picture of aging. Their lives often become very difficult, unable to fulfill any useful role in the family or in the community. Old people are considered a very heavy burden. Metchnikoff was trying to sell his science, so he was playing to his audience, stoking the fears of aging that were growing at the time, and then saying, hey, don't worry, science has the solution. And then he said, in this one region of Bulgaria, they're living to 100, and it's because they're eating? Yogurt. Yogurt. And I ate lots of yogurt. He connected all these dots together. We age because in the intestines there is rotting, and lactic acid that is produced in sour milk can stop this rotting by killing the bacteria that cause the rotting. And there you have proof. All over the world, you know, newspapers started running, running stories. I think it's rare to trace the beginning of an industry to a single event. But in this case, I can pretty much, I can say, you know, that the yogurt industry started with that lecture. Pharmacies started stocking yogurt. Doctors recommended it to patients. People used it as a disinfectant or for preparation for surgery, even to treat some diseases. This stuff was all over the place. There were ads, this cafe on one of the Parisian boulevards advertised Bulgarian curdled milk. Even breakfast cereal pioneer John Harvey Kellogg reached out to Mechnikov. His face was everywhere. They sold cups of yogurt and it said, recommended by Professor Mechnikov and the medical profession. It was totally got out of hand, completely. Mechnikov tried to control the narrative around his science, but it was hard when so many people wanted to believe in a magic elixir to cure aging. Even Mechnikov was an optimist about what his science could accomplish until the end. But soon the headlines made a dark world impossible to ignore. War declared, all Europe in turmoil. What really killed him uh, was uh, World War One. He was such a believer in rational thought, in science. He thought that there will be no more wars. His wife describes it like how overnight he turned into an old man. The idea that humans would willfully create so much death crushed him. Let all those who expected me to live 100 years or longer Forgive me, my premature death. Mechnikov died from a heart attack in 1916 at 71 years old, not even halfway to the 150 years he thought people should live. A lot of people were disappointed, but the study of gerontology was born, and many of the same ideas about aging are being discussed today, including the benefits of probiotics. And we still seem obsessed with how long we can live, how well we can live, and how close we are to doing what's never been done before. That was Throughline producer Devin Katayama speaking with author Luba Vikonsky. You can hear the entire episode by finding Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. 
kaufman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in spring training action today. The Red Sox tied the Cardinals 3-3 this afternoon. And the Celtics shoot for their ninth win in a row tonight as they take on the Philadelphia 76ers at the Garden. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's presidential primary day in Michigan. Results should come in about nine tonight. While both President Biden and Donald Trump are expected to continue their respective roads to the White House with wins in that state, each faces opposition. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, February 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the measles virus is highly contagious. It spreads easily when an infected person coughs or sneezes. They can linger and hang in the air for up to two hours. And if somebody is not vaccinated, they have up to a 90% chance of contracting measles. Florida is facing a measles outbreak in elementary schools, but its top health official won't encourage people to get vaccinated. And it's been a year since some companies finished their experiment with four-day work weeks. We'll hear how it turned out. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Michigan's presidential primary is today. Most polls will be closing at 8 p.m. Eastern. As NPR's Lena Moore reports, none of the major presidential candidates are in the state today. But former President Donald Trump and President Biden are expected to win their contests. Despite being a crucial battleground state, there's little candidate buzz in Michigan today. On the Democratic side, Biden faces deep division among some of his base that supported him in 2020, notably Arab and Muslim Americans in the state. A campaign called Listen to Michigan is urging Democrats to vote uncommitted as a statement against Biden's handling of Israel's war. In Gaza. They want him to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire and stop sending additional aid to Israel. On the Republican side, former South Carolina governor and longshot presidential contender Nikki Haley was the only candidate to make in person stops in the state this week, but she faces a steep challenge against Trump. 
Elena Moore, NPR News, Detroit. A federal prosecutor is calling a Michigan case one of the largest of its kind after 14 defendants were sentenced for violating the Clean Air Act. Member station WCMU, Teresa Holmesy has more. Following an EPA investigation, a district court found the company Diesel Freak was knowingly disabling environmental controls on hundreds of trucks. The scheme allowed diesel trucks to operate more efficiently while releasing toxic emissions above legal limits. Randall Olson is a vehicle software specialist and was not part of the investigation. It's definitely a thing that's happening all over the country all of the time. And whether or not you have enough evidence to prove it and prosecute it is the thing that's surprising. The company is now being ordered to pay $750,000 in fines. For NPR News, I'm Teresa Holmesy in Sheboygan, Michigan. While the Biden administration and others have been trying to work to come up with an acceptable ceasefire deal in Gaza, it seems the major players are less enthusiastic. The president yesterday seemed to signal a deal could be reached by next week. However, Hamas spokesman said no new proposals have been received. The proposal has been discussed that would put in place a six-week ceasefire in exchange for release of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners by the respective sides. The goal would be to coincide with the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. New orders for durable goods fell more than expected last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the numbers from the Commerce Department. Orders for long-lasting manufactured goods fell more than 6% last month as new orders for commercial airplanes nosedived. Durable goods orders have fallen in three of the last four months. Macy's says it plans to close 50 department stores this year and 100 more in the two years that follow. The retailer, which lost money in the most recent quarter, also plans to open some new stores under the high-end blooming and Blue Mercury brands. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow was down 96 points. The Nasdaq rose 59 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General is asking the state's highest court to force the town of Milton to comply with a new zoning law. The MBTA communities law requires cities and towns with MBTA stops to zone part of their communities for multifamily housing. Milton approved such a plan in December, but then voters overturned the measure earlier this month. AG Andrea Campbell filed a lawsuit today that she says she hopes will prevent other communities from violating the law. This tool works. The legislature got it. It shouldn't be voluntary. It should be mandatory because we need such a significant tool. And our job is to enforce it as it is, and we're excited about working with municipalities to get it done. The town administrator in Milton says he looks forward to defending the town against the lawsuit. A group of Boston city leaders is hoping to make their Dominican Independence Day breakfast into an annual event that rivals the St. Patrick's Day political breakfast. Three city councilors hosted the first event today, and WBR Solon Kelleher was there. At a Dorchester Union Hall, fried eggs and espresso-sized cups of Cafe Santo Domingo were on the menu for the city's newest political breakfast. Councillor Julia Mejia had the idea for the event after three Dominican-Americans were elected to Boston City Council for the first time. I came here when I was five years old and I didn't know how to speak a lick of English. And today to be here and to see this room full of Dominicans and Americans under one roof really says to me that everything that I went through to get here was worth it. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says she expects the breakfast to continue. Minus the bad jokes at the St. Paddy's Day roast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The night watchman who led thieves dressed as police into the Gardner Museum more than three decades ago has died. 
Richard Rick Abbott was 23 years old at the time. He was working as a security guard when he led into the museum two thieves who claimed to be police officers. They then tied him up and stole a half billion dollars worth of art. The heist still hasn't been solved. Abbott maintained he played no role in the theft. The Gardner Museum said in a statement it's sorry to hear of his passing, but has no further comment. A change in the weather is on the way. Rain moves in tonight. Winds pick up pretty warm for the overnight hours, about 49 degrees. Tomorrow, the rain continues, as do the high winds. They could reach 45 miles an hour at times tomorrow, and that could bring down tree limbs and cause power outages. Temperatures all the way to about 60 tomorrow. And then for Thursday, sunshine returns. Still windy, but suddenly a lot colder. Highs only in the mid-30s. It is 49 degrees now in Boston at 607. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A couple years ago, dozens of British companies switched to a four-day work week with no reduction in pay. Sounds pretty nice. What started out as a pilot program has turned into an overwhelming success. We'll have more on that in a few moments. But first, the 2024 presidential primary season continues, and Michigan appears poised to follow the script of states that have already voted. That means lopsided victories for both President Biden and former President Trump. Even so, there are still interesting storylines to watch. And to talk about those storylines, NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne, who is based in Michigan, joins us now. Hey, Don. Hey, good to be here. So, I mean, it goes without saying Michigan is important. Trump won the state in 2016, Biden in 2020. What has the campaign been like there this week with the vote coming just, what, three days after South Carolina's primaries? Yeah, it's not exactly been rush hour for the leading candidates. <laughs> Trump was last year more than a week ago for a rally. Nikki Haley has been in suburban Detroit and Grand Rapids the past two days. She's attracted small but loyal crowds. Uh, Biden was here earlier this month for a visit to a UAW phone bank operation. The UAW, United Auto Workers, have, of course, endorsed him. Vice President Harris was here talking reproductive rights, but it it hasn't been as busy as other primary seasons, but there is something interesting going on. Uh-huh. The primary has also been a chance for protests against Biden policy. Specifically, Arab American and Muslim voters are angry that the U.S. continues to support Israel and that Biden hasn't called for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Right. And how exactly are those voters protesting this election? So the, the the protest is asking voters to choose uncommitted on their ballot. That's literally a box they can check on their ballot to withhold their support for Biden, to send him a message that his policies need to change drastically. Arab American and Muslim voters are a small but important voting block here. So the goal of the campaign is to get 10,000 votes for uncommitted to act as a warning that if these voters stay home or go third third party come November, then Biden could lose the state. Uh, The Biden team, meanwhile, says it's committed to earning every vote here, uh, but these protesters say he's not 
earned their vote and that there needs to be a permanent ceasefire now. Okay. Well, despite those protests, the results of this primary is pretty much, well, it's widely expected that both Biden and Trump will come through to win the state. But even if primaries, you know, in a year like this one where there really doesn't seem to be much of a contest, what can they show us? You know, it tells us who turns out and who the diehard voters are. It shows us what's important to them. Biden has to hang on to his core voters, and we'll get a sense of that today. Uh, Black voters, union members, young voters, suburban voters, especially suburban women, all those are voting groups. You're going to see Trump trying to peel some votes off for himself. He had some success at that when he won in 2016, uh, but 2020, Biden held that coalition together and carried Michigan and the election. So Biden's got to hang on to those voters. Trump is going to be looking for ways to try to uh, woo some of them. That is NPR's Don Gagne. Thank you, Don. It's my pleasure. Let's turn now from Michigan to Florida, where an outbreak of measles raises concerns for public health. Ten cases have been reported in South and Central Florida, and experts say the state's response rejects science-based practices and puts children in danger of a deadly disease. NPR's Ping Huang is here in the studio with the latest. Hey, Ping. Hey, Ari. Bring us up to speed here. How is the outbreak developing? Yeah, so the measles outbreak that we're talking about today, it started in mid-February at an elementary school in South Florida. As you said, there's now 10 cases total. There's nine in Broward County where the school is and one case in Central Florida in Polk County. And or you might say, okay, 10 cases doesn't sound like a whole lot. But the thing with measles is that it's really, really contagious. So if someone with measles walks through a hallway, sneezes, that measles virus can stay in the air and infect someone who walks through the space two hours later. And if someone's not vaccinated, has no immunity to it, nine times out of ten, if they get exposed, they're going to get measles. So a single case is cause for concern. Ten cases is pretty bad news, especially because the response so far, it goes against standard public health advice. That figure, nine out of ten unvaccinated people in that situation would get measles, is really striking. Tell us what you mean by the state's response goes against standard public health advice. What is that advice? Yeah, so measles has been studied for over a century, and there are clear steps to contain an outbreak. Here's Dr. Scott Ribkeys. He's a public health professor at Brown University. If you have an outbreak, you have early vaccination, try to get people vaccinated with three days of exposure. And for those individuals who are not, those individuals have to quarantine for 21 days. And that's because people can spread the virus even if they don't have symptoms. Now, Rivkeys, who you just heard, he's the former Surgeon General in Florida. That's the advice Florida would be getting if he was still in the role. But he left in 2021, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis put a doctor named Joseph Latipo in that role next. Latipo was part of a group that pushed unproven COVID treatments even before he took on the role. And as Surgeon General, he refused to wear masks and he discouraged people from getting COVID vaccines. And science has told us both of those measures are proven to help prevent COVID infections. Mm -hmm. So what is Florida's current Surgeon General now saying about measles? Well, last week, in a letter to parents, Latipo didn't recommend that kids get vaccinated, and he left it to parents to decide whether to send their kids to school. Dr. Ali Khan, he's the public health dean at the University of Nebraska, and he says that's irresponsible. This is dangerous behavior for public health. It's very dangerous because if you're undermining confidence in public health, including vaccination and public health measures, you are putting an increasing number of people at risk of these diseases that we no longer see anymore. 
I mean, no longer see anymore. Because it is so rare, many people have not seen or experienced measles. What are the actual risks? What are the stakes here? Yeah, so so a mild case of measles can involve getting a rash, diarrhea, dehydration. That's already pretty bad. But it can get more serious than that. It can turn into pneumonia. In rare cases, it can even lead to brain swelling, which can cause children to lose their sight or their hearing. And it can also be deadly. So in the U.S., before there was a vaccine, the U.S. was seeing 500 deaths from measles each year. Mm. Now, for the last 23 years, measles has been considered eliminated from the U.S. And obviously, we still do see cases of it, but those are usually related to foreign travel. We can continue to keep that elimination status so long as each measles outbreak that we have gets contained within a year. Just briefly, is this going to get worse before it gets better? We'll have to wait and see. I mean, in Florida, you know, we're going to watch and see if there are more measles cases and overall in the U.S. as well. So far, there have been 35 cases in 15 states this year, and there probably will be more, especially in pockets where there are lower vaccination rates. And Pierre's Ping Huang, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. The four-day work week for five days of pay is proving to be the gift that keeps on giving. Companies who are trying it report happier workers, lower turnover, and greater efficiency. NPR's Andrea Xu reports on the latest research coming out of those trials. Around this time last year, early results from a large trial in the UK caused a hullabaloo. Of 61 companies that had moved to a four-day work week with no reduction in pay, 92% said they would continue with it. Now another whole year has passed, and all but a few have either made it permanent or extended their trials. Boston College sociologist Juliet Shore is part of the research team. People are feeling really on top of their work with this new model. She says the gains are not a novelty effect, and they're not limited to the UK. Survey data from elsewhere, including here in the U.S., show lasting improvements in things like physical and mental health and work-life balance. The results are really stable. A couple of the U.K. employers talked about their experiences in a webinar hosted by the researchers. Nikki Russell, who leads a water conservation nonprofit in London, says she realized early on... You know, if we close on a Friday, nobody dies. We aren't doctors. We're not running a chip shop. Still, they were busy. So to make it work, they now keep all their meetings to half an hour. They block off focus time in their calendars. They're more mindful about email. So I only do my emails now at certain times of the day. I'm not sort of drawn into them all day, every day. All 10 people at the company loved the changes. Most of them said they wouldn't consider a five-day-a-week job again without a significant raise. It's brilliant for retention, which is super important in a teeny organization like ours. Now, one thing the researchers have learned is that there's no one-size-fits-all. Giving everyone Fridays off wouldn't have worked for the housing cooperative in South Wales, where Ruth Llewellyn works. They have 240 employees working in roles from customer service to home repairs and maintenance. We still operate a Monday to Friday service because for us, the thought of dropping a repair service for our tenants one day a week meant that we wouldn't be providing the same service. So employees work a variety of schedules. Some have a set day off and for others it changes. We've also got people that do two half days, people that do five days, shorter hours, which allows them to do things like drop the children at school and pick them up. Llewellyn says there are fewer sick day callouts and employee performance has been consistent. Still, they want to collect more data, so they extended their pilot for another year. We're really hopeful at that point that we can make it permanent. Now, the researchers did talk about one of the very few companies where the experiment failed. A small consultancy struggled with managing client and stakeholder expectations. 
Although employees were happier, management had a change of heart. The researchers suggest that better planning and more flexibility might have changed that outcome. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Starter homes used to be a thing. They still exist, but what are they like now? That story coming up in Business News, which starts at 6.30. A mixed show on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ ended on the upside. The S&P gained nearly two-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ pulled in almost four-tenths of a percent. More Business News coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Cambridge College in Boston is being acquired by Bay Path University in Longmeadow in Western Mass. Today, the school said the deal will help them focus on providing career-focused education for adults and first-generation college students. The combined school will have about 5,000 students. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Got a change in the weather on the way overnight tonight. Look for rain moving in sometime after 9 o'clock. Really strong winds, relatively warm temperatures, about 49 degrees at the lowest tonight. Then for tomorrow, showers off and on all day. Very windy, could put down some tree limbs and maybe result in power outages, pushing 60 degrees tomorrow. And then Thursday, rain ends early, mainly sunny skies, still windy though, and a lot cooler than it has been. Temperatures may peak at 35 degrees. This is WBUR at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority and his government all resigned yesterday. Now, the Palestinian Authority does not govern in Gaza. It administers part of the occupied West Bank. And its top official is President Mahmoud Abbas, who did not resign. 
But the U.S. and other Arab countries have been pushing the Palestinian Authority to reform itself, hoping that it could help govern Gaza after the war ends. NPR's Fatma Tanis is covering this from Tel Aviv. Hi there. Hi, Ari. Why this upheaval in the government of the Palestinian Authority now, and who might take the place of those who've resigned? So I should say that nothing has really changed immediately. Uh, President Mahmoud Abbas has accepted the announcement, but the prime minister and government are still in place in a caretaker role until a successor is announced, and we don't know when that would be. Uh, What Abbas is trying to do here is respond to international pressure for the Palestinian Authority to reform. It's known as dysfunctional and corrupt. You know, Arab countries have actually made this a condition for financial support. Meanwhile, the U.S. wants the PA to play a viable part in in a post-war plan. So they need a government that can operate in both the West Bank and Gaza, you know, be a stabilizing factor after the war, oversee things like humanitarian aid flow, uh, and the massive effort to rebuild Gaza. Now, analysts say this is all at a surface level at this point. Any new government would need to have political buy-in from all Palestinian factions, which would include Hamas, and would be made up of technocrats who aren't politically affiliated but can run civil administration. The way you're describing it sounds like a pipe dream. Could it actually work? Well, there are two main hurdles, among others. Uh, This is an effort that would require a lot of internal orchestration and leadership, and many don't think that President Abbas, who is almost 90 years old, is up for it. I spoke with uh, Khaled El-Gindi, who is the director of Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli issues at the Middle East Institute. Here's how he put it. He's not known for bold maneuvers, for strategic thinking. He is very much about maintaining his grip on power. He's hugely unpopular. So there's potential. I'm just not sure that it can happen on the watch of Mahmoud Abbas. The other issue is Israel's current right-wing government, who don't want to see any national Palestinian entity that's governing both Gaza and the West Bank. Israel wants a local group in Gaza taking care of stuff like schools and roads while it maintains security and military control. But that is also something that Palestinians in Gaza would be against, and experts say that could even lead to an insurgency in the enclave. Yeah, we're talking about who would govern Palestinians. What do most Palestinians think about all this? Well, there's long been a sense of disillusionment among Palestinians. Uh, Today, Samir Taha in Ramallah told NPR that he was not surprised by the news. Here's what he said. He says any new government is meaningless as long as we are not in control of our own fate and the U.S., EU and Israel get to decide what happens. We also spoke to Suhair Khalid, who would really like to see a Palestinian government that oversees Gaza and the West Bank. Here she is. She emphasized that she wants to see real unity that would help create a Palestinian state in the future and move away from the fractured politics of today. Uh, Others have said that they wanted to see Palestinian leadership that works for the people and not for their own advantages. Uh, Of course, Ari, we should mention that there have been no elections held in the Palestinian territories since 2006. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you. On Thursday, President Biden travels to Texas to visit the U.S. border with Mexico. Now, former President Trump will be at the border, too, but hundreds of miles away. Texas Democrats hope Biden's visit means a turning point for their party's border message, which has become one of the most pressing political fights across the country. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. During a festive Democratic rally at an early voting site in Laredo, Texas, couple Francisco Enriquez and Lupita Garcia recalled a very unique wedding ceremony. 
Enriquez, a U.S. citizen, and Garcia, a Mexican resident, say in their native Spanish that they married on a nearby international crossing bridge more than five years ago. He says they lived apart for five years until Garcia recently gained legal U.S. residency. This, Enrique says, as he saw migrants cross illegally all the time. Enrique says he supports a lot of Democratic policies and he won't vote for former President Trump. He likes his local Democrats, but he's not as excited about their leaders. He wishes they would do more on the border. A few blocks away, Texas Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar says he happens to agree. Why are we ceding the border security debate to Republicans? We did that for years. That's Cuellar at his Laredo office. He says the high-profile transfer of migrants by plane and bus from Texas to other states and cities changed everything. I don't think a lot of the other people saw it, too. They started seeing it in Chicago, D.C., and New York, and other places. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's real. It has always been real for Cuellar. He served 10 terms despite challenges from Republicans, in part because he says he leaned into the border fight. I think it's important for Democrats to push back on the narrative. Hey, border security, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. They need to step into it. I stepped into it and it works. When Cuellar says it works, he points to one of the latest examples, Democrat Tom Suozzi, who ran in a special election for a New York congressional seat. He noted Suozzi leaned into the border debate and won. Cuellar says the playbook for Democrats' border success also needs to include better top-down messaging in the party. Other border Democrats like Congressman Vicente Gonzalez bristle at the confusing border czar role given to Vice President Kamala Harris three years ago. I don't understand that. I yeah. still don't understand that. We never saw her here. We never talked about it. She never met with us, never talked to me. For years, Gonzalez, a four-term member who represents the Texas Valley in the state's southeast corner, made it his mission to convince Biden to visit. I think it's important for him to visit the border and visit a region where he's well-loved and, and he has a lot of support. And if you drive down the expressway, you see all kinds of massive infrastructure that's developing right now that all came from funding under his programs. That's Gonzalez just before he cast his early vote at City Hall in West Laco, Texas, and just before he got his wish. This week, Biden finally announced his first visit as president to Gonzalez's district. It marks Biden's second stop to the Texas-Mexico border since he was elected, following the first in January 2023 to El Paso. And I think it's important for him to come out here and not only here, but across the country and take credits for some of the great things that they've accomplished. House Democrats hope they can make progress here by backing Michelle Vallejo in her bid to unseat GOP Congresswoman Monica de la Cruz in a Texas border district. It's an uphill battle, but during a recent visit to a McAllen coffee shop, Vallejo says it doesn't have to be that way if Democrats engage in the border fight. For us, it's important that we have a functioning border and we need to eliminate all of the chaos because this is our home. Democrats may face a firewall of Republican districts, low voter turnout, and complaints of GOP gerrymandering in Texas. But they hope their party's border shift could fuel a national blue tide come November. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, along the Texas border.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Showers should start about 9 or 10 tonight. Kick off a blanket should be about 49 degrees at the lowest, so pretty warm tonight. Tomorrow, showers, some wild winds up around 60 degrees. And then Thursday, temperatures fall only about 35 degrees at the highest. It should be sunny and very windy once again. This is WBUR, 48 degrees now at 630. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Thirst. Two Irish immigrants search for a place to call home in this drama by Rona Noon, now through March 17th. LyricStage.com.